And then you run into a massive problem. Real diplomacy requires real compromises from both sides. This is Strategic Horizons, a podcast on geopolitics in the Shia world. I'm Michelle Nimi, broadcasting from Harvard University's project on Shiism and global affairs. On today's episode, I moderate a foreign policy dialogue on the future of America's military presence in the Middle East. On one side of that conversation is Michael Sin, Managing Director of the Washington Institute and former National Security Advisor to the Bush administration. And on the other side, we have Trita Parsi, co-founder and executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. We interrogate the accused pivot in America's security posture towards Iran, from the diplomatic de-escalation of an Obama-brokered JCPOA to the explicit state interventionism of Qasem Soleimani's assassination. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast channel for more content on geopolitics in the Shia world. Thank you so much, Michael and Trita, for joining us for the project's second installment on geopolitics in what is obviously a crucial time in determining both the direction and severity of tensions between Iran and the US. Michael, I wanted to start with a comment you made on your Twitter just yesterday about the Iranian missile attack on a US-occupied Iraqi base and the growing number of revealed US casualties in that attack. And to quote you, you say that when we commit to maximum pressure through sanctions, we're implicitly committing to a robust counter-Iran military posture. So what does this robust counter-Iran military posture look like? And I want to ask that question specifically within the context of Iran's unconventional paramilitarized military strategy of developing an axis of resistance, quote-unquote, where military intervention against uh, Iran is likely to be, unlikely rather, to be a purely localized strategy. Well, first, thanks for having me here. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on this, uh, on this podcast. Um, I think you need to bear in mind that when you're designing policy, uh, it's not a Chinese menu. You don't just get to sort of pick what you want um, and sort of enjoy it as a standalone, uh, as a standalone approach. You also have to think about how will your adversary respond what choices um, will the, the sort of strategy you choose then lead you to, in a sense? And that's what we're experiencing today. So the United States, I think, chose economic sanctions against Iran because it's an area of comparative advantage for the United States. We have tremendous power in the international financial system to isolate a state like Iran. The way that Iran has pushed back are in areas where I think Iran perceives that it has a comparative advantage. So for example, um, using military force to attack energy infrastructure in the region, or using proxies to attack U.S. facilities in Iraq, um, which is what precipitated the last round of tensions. Um, it's also escalated uh, on the nuclear front, increasing its uh, nuclear activities, decreasing its compliance with the 2015 nuclear agreement, the JCPOA. Um, and so that has in turn led us to a position where we have to find ways to push back on the things that it's doing to push back on our maximum right. pressure campaign. Um, and that means, I think, having a military posture in the region which, number one, can serve as an obstacle for Iran, uh, deterrence by denial, we, we might call that, sure. um, to maybe dissuade them from thinking that they have that comparative advantage against us on the ground in the region. But then also having uh, forces in place to respond if Iran attacks. Um, this is the sort of thing that we saw after their attack on the U.S. military facility 
in Iraq, then obviously there was a strike on Qasem Soleimani. Hmm. So that's why I say if you start with economic sanctions, you have to you have to ultimately think about where that leads you and where it has led us, and I think where um, it was inevitably going to lead us was to also needing to have this military posture in the region. Mm. So Trader, by the counterfactual in a recent piece for the Quincy Institute, you cast doubt upon the idea that U.S. interventionism, rather than a bulwark against escalation in the Middle East, is a barrier to potential de-escalation. As a counterpoint, you claim that Trump's earlier refusal to get into shooting war with Iran after the Aramco attacks generated space for moderation between regional powers. And in your own words, recognizing that the U.S. military was no longer at their disposal, Saudi Arabia and the UAE began exercising the diplomatic options that had always been available to them. So how does this doctrine then of non-intervention deal with the concern of threat perceptions between Middle Eastern powers and interact with Michael's opinion here that when you have one layer of deterrence, often you need to be able to show some level of force behind that or to have options available in your armory of policy decisions to make? Thank you. Well, I think what it really comes down to is to go back to the very first thing that Michael said, which is that once we decided to go for the economic sanctions policy, which Trump himself calls economic warfare, then inevitably it would lead to a bunch of other things. It would be completely naive to believe that it would not generate pushback from the Iranians. Mm. This was what many critics pointed out, that this will lead to pushback. That pushback will then, Michael put it as, inevitably lead to a need for a different force posture. What we're seeing is that one action gets another action and then this keeps on going forward and, and the question is what is the end station of this? Well. I'm not seeing a scenario in which if the U.S. were to take some of this additional uh, posture in the region would actually offset the likelihood of escalation. Rather, there would be yet another step in that escalation that would be yet another step of counter-escalation from the Iranians. And inevitably, where that would lead is some form of a military confrontation. And I think some of the countries that advised Trump to go in this direction had that in mind. Um, I don't think Trump had that in mind. I think Trump had a, something completely different in mind. He actually bought the argument that only six months of this would be sufficient and the Iranians would collapse. Mm. We now know quite clearly that this type of economic pressure is not going to lead to that type of a capitulation on the Iranian side. The economic pressure that Trump has put on the Iranians is far beyond what the Obama administration did. Mm. And it still has not led to that. What it has led to is counter-escalation. And the two countries have now, in the span of six months, twice been only minutes away from a full-scale war. Hmm. That, I think, was completely predictable and was predicted by many people. Now, when it comes to what other countries do then, seeing that type of charitable posture by the United States to be willing to use force in the region created an incentive structure for some of the countries who have legitimate disagreements with Iran to feel that they had been on the losing end of the regional rivalry and it would simply be optimal for them to have the United States take care of this problem militarily, mindful of the massive military superiority that the United States has, rather than them exercising diplomacy and having to negotiate with the Iranians from a position that they perceive to be a weak one. Mm. It's only after Trump first signaled that he's not going to go to war with Iran on their behalf that you start seeing them starting exercising, albeit at a very uh, 
embryonic stage some of that diplomatic um, uh, possibilities that existed. And I think that raises the question then, which I try to do in this article, to say, is it perhaps so that this posture by the United States, rather than creating deterrence, etc., actually at times have fueled the desire for conflict in the region? Because for some states, that is a better outcome than actually having to engage because of their otherwise uh, weaker position. And that then goes to the very core of why are we there. If we're not there to help stabilize, if we're not there to prevent another hegemon from being able to control the resources of the region, uh, and if that is not being achieved, then I think we have to have some very serious questions as to whether this posture, not just a logical conclusion that Michael raised, but just the, the first initial step actually serves American interest. So I want to pick up on a comment you made earlier in your remarks that it is clear now that the economic pressure that America is imposing upon Iran will not lead to capitulation. Because so many assessments made of the correct Iran containment strategy seem to pivot on competing assertions about the current circumstances which the Iranian regime faces. For example, anti-interventionists might point to hordes of mourners in the wake of Soleimani's assassination and claim that Iran has proven its resolve, this has inflamed tensions. While interventionists might claim that Iranian anti-regime protests have never been more powerful, that there is rampant dissatisfaction with the regime. Equally, anti-interventionists might claim that Iran's capacity for regional hegemony for remaining economically strong is overstated, or interventionists that is underestimated. How are we, as the external observer, to pass through these conflicting assertions when so much seems to pivot upon it in terms of the conclusions that we end up making in what is the right strategy to take on a policy level? We'll start with Michael on a response to that. Sure. Well, I think you have to be a bit careful and cautious about connecting too many dots. Mm. I think if we were to plot unrest in Iran or protest in Iran, against U.S. strategy towards Iran, you wouldn't find a direct correlation. There have been protests in Iran at times when sanctions were lifted. There have been protests in Iran at times when sanctions were quite harsh. Mm -hmm. I think what we can say is that economic sanctions, the, that the pressure that creates, does reduce or eliminate the buffers the regime has available to respond to protests, um, which could, in theory, fuel instability. But I would be cautious about drawing a direct relationship between what we see happening inside Iran and then American or international policy toward Iran. Um, I do think we can say um, with certainty that the economic sanctions have had a devastating effect on Iran's economy. I don't think we can say with certainty, though, where that ultimately leads in terms of a policy outcome. Um, because you can look across the world and say, well, Venezuela is experiencing devastating economic effects mm -hmm. of sanctions. Um, this is true also of Syria, of North Korea, of other places. Um, and again, you can't draw a direct correlation between that level of economic duress and the United States achieving its big policy outcomes. And in fact, academic research bears this out. Oftentimes, sanctions by themselves are not effective as a tool to achieve big policy outcomes, where you're trying to change the strategy or the policy of a state adversary. Instead, they're perhaps useful as one of a mix of tools. Um, and the other tools, of course, available are things like military pressure, diplomacy, and the art of policy is to figure out how to combine those tools to achieve an outcome. I do expect that at some point, the pressure is likely to become so severe on Iran that it will have to think about returning to negotiations with the United States. Mm. The question I think that's pertinent, though, is what path will it take to get back to the negotiating table? And my concern, uh, my prediction, let's say, is that Iran will 
want to come back to negotiations via some sort of crisis, building some sort of leverage of its own. And that probably means we're in for more escalation, maybe on the regional front, perhaps more likely on the nuclear front, before we get that resumption of U.S.-Iran negotiations. Okay. And I want to then pick up on that idea, Michael, uh, from Michael's comments, rather, for Trita. How is it that you have that array of policy options when, under your proposal, it would seem like we would shirk military intervention as one of the policy options on that suite of options available to the US, or at least try to avoid it at a severe cost, that it, it doesn't seem to be a strategy that is working under your view and is one that almost inevitably leads to de-escalation, or escalation rather, and forecloses de-escalation. How then do you see this engagement between economic sanctions, between diplomatic action, particularly when there are likely to be threat perceptions from countries like Saudi Arabia and Israel, whether or not in earnest, at least played up internally and domestically? Well, um, if I understood your question correctly, uh, the mixture of policy, one of the assumptions that are being made here is that we actually have a functioning policy process. I don't think that is the case. This is a, a, an extremely chaotic administration. Um, things are not going through the same type of processes and checks to make sure that um, enough eyes, enough people have had a chance to weigh in and make sure that uh, the final outcome is something that uh, has some degree of quality control. Um, and as a result, I think we're seeing things being tested and shifted back and forth and 188 degrees, and then trying to distill all of that into, well, this was this one policy and this is how it, it has evolved, I don't think will end up working. One has to have a model that actually factors in chaos mm -hmm. much more so than what we're usually used to. But if we assume that we would be in a situation with a more functioning po uh, policy process. The challenge, I think, from the U.S. side, perhaps it comes from the fact that it has such a comparative advantage when it comes to military, has such comparative advantage when it comes to the economy, economic sanctions, as um, Michael pointed out, is that the policy mixture tends to be extremely heavily weighted in that direction. Mm. And diplomacy is at worst not existing, most of the time an afterthought, and every once in a while pursued in that very serious manner that it needs to be pursued in order to be effective and successful. And then you run into a massive problem, which is real diplomacy requires real compromises from both sides. But for a country that is so economically and militarily dominant, it is very difficult to domestically justify, or at least within the foreign policy uh, establishment in Washington, justify why do we have to compromise? We're the superpower. Everyone else is way, way below. And I think that was part of the problem with Iran deal. Iran deal actually was a genuine compromise. That's why it worked. But that's also why it created so much resentment in certain quarters in Washington. The very idea that the United States had to compromise, not just with a middling power, but a middling power that really had made its uh, uh, a core objective to challenge American hegemony for the last 40 years, did not sit down well with a lot of people. And so this, I, I'm saying this to express my concern that as long as we have a posture in the region in which we think that all of these problems are ours to solve, our solutions will be almost inevitably weighted 
in favor of military and economic sanctions and not towards diplomacy. And mindful of the fact that the problem ultimately is a diplomatic one, makes me skeptical about how the U.S. can be successful. Just on this point, I think when we talk about military restraint, you know, there's intervention and then there's intervention. Uh, and the military tool is actually a flexible one that you can use in many ways. Mm. Um, and I think the conundrum right now for the Trump administration is that a strategy of maximum pressure is inherently a strategy of brinksmanship. Uh, and we've seen this with respect to Iran. We saw this in the North Korea case. Mm. And when you uh, employ a strategy of brinksmanship, you are uh, taking a lot of risk on. Um, you are pushing things to the point of crisis, which means you're going to have a, a real escalation in tensions. And we've seen that playing out uh, in the Gulf. I think we, as, as Trita mentioned, we've been close to war with Iran uh, on at least two occasions in the past six or, or nine months. Um, and that means, as, uh, we, as we started talking about, you're going to need to have this growing military posture to deal with that prospect uh, of conflict. Now, if your overall strategy, though, if your overall objective is to uh, disentangle yourself from the Middle East, to reduce your forces in the Middle East, um, to shift them, as, uh, as we've talked about, towards great power competition with mm -hmm. Russia and China, um, then obviously there's a, there's a contradiction there. And I think that's what the Trump administration uh, faces in terms of its, its policy challenge. But that's, that's not to say that you, therefore, need to eschew the military tool, because one thing which I think is important um, an important element of our Iran policy is the idea that were Iran to, say, sprint for a nuclear weapon, uh, which is not where we are today, but is a potential scenario for the future, there would be a, an American military intervention to prevent that. That needs to be a credible threat, I think, if you're going to stop Iran from getting a, a nuclear weapon. Um, so the military tool is flexible, and how you use it, I think, is, is quite important. But again, it, it has to be used in a way which comports with not just your regional strategy, but also your global strategy. If I could uh, chime in on that as well. I think um, there's always going to be a military component to whatever the U.S. does by the nature of the U.S. being a superpower. But I think we're faced with a particular challenge here, which is the strategies that are opted for tend to structurally lead us to a point in which the military component becomes more and more important. As you pointed out, Michael, it started off as economic sanctions, but that will get uh, counter-escalation from the Iranians. And now, in order to continue that policy, we need to have a military component. We have to ask ourselves, why did we need that policy in the first place? We had a functioning nuclear deal. Trump may not have liked it because it wasn't his, it was Obama's. But are we in a better situation? And then if we then take additional steps, now we have to add more military components to it because we're committed to this policy, but not willing to ask ourselves, hold on, why did we go down this path in the first place? We have made the region more insecure. We have made the United States itself less secure. Um, and we are now, from being a situation in which we had a functioning deal, whatever challenges may have been coming with it, was there were mechanisms to solve that, but now we've been twice on the brink of war with Iran in six months, only 10 minutes away. How is that possibly better? Michael is absolutely right. It is brinkmanship. Why are we pursuing brinkmanship instead of real diplomacy? That's the question, in my view, that are not being asked in Washington. There seems to be an almost default orientation to, to 
go towards that. And again, I think it's partly because that's where America's comparative advantage is perceived to be. We're so dominant militarily. We're so dominant e economically. So we're gravitating towards that, even if that may not actually in any way, shape, or form truly be the option that serves our interests. Mm -hmm. I'm worried about the Iranians having had a scenario created for them in which their incentive structure will be to have a nuclear bomb. Because if you're sitting in Tehran and you're asking yourself, why is that happening to Iran? Why is Trump doing this to Iran but not to North Korea? Why can that brinkmanship be so attractive on Iran but far less so on North Korea, even though he did pursue it with North Korea as well? I think some people there may draw the conclusion it's because Iran only had nuclear enrichment. Hmm. Whereas Kim had the weapon and the delivery systems. That's not an incentive structure that I think we should be creating for countries. That's not an incentive structure that leads us towards uh, a more peaceful world or a more secure America. Yeah, but, but one thing that Trita said earlier, I think, reveals part of the answer as to how it is we find ourselves at this junction today, juncture today. Um, and I think it's that the JCPOA, the, the nuclear agreement, in some ways create, had the seeds of its own demise within it. Uh, because, as Trita said, I think the Trump administration came in and believed that the costs of enforcing the deal, of keeping to the deal, um, were greater than the costs of breaking away from the deal. Mm -hmm. That, in fact, there were benefits from breaking away uh, from the deal because that would then allow us to use our economic power not just to address Iran's nuclear program, but to address that full range of activities in which Iran was uh, engaged in the Middle East, is engaged in the Middle East. And this goes back to one of the criticisms that I had and others had of the nuclear deal in the first place, which was it was based upon a theory of sort of American disengagement from the Middle East, that we would prioritize this nuclear issue um, and really take out of our hands, take out of our arsenal, as it were, uh, the best tools that we had available for addressing issues like Iran's support for proxies in the region and so forth, um, without necessarily building the necessary domestic bipartisan consensus for that kind of strategy. And so I think, therefore, when a new party came into office, when a new president came into office, um, that fell apart. Um, and I think that was inevitable. I think one of the lessons here is that foreign policy and domestic politics are intrinsically connected to one another, uh, and you can't really divorce the two. And now I want to push both of you then on this seeming Gordian knot that seems to adhere to either path we choose. Because from what it seems, brinksmanship does seem to lead to, as both of you have conceded, some level of escalation. It's just unclear whether that escalation forbears a solution in the future. And a lack of brinksmanship potentially doesn't seem to pave the way for incentives to engage in the first place. So firstly, to Trudeau, I was wondering, what is the mechanism by which you induce Iran to engage in diplomatic activity now, if not by elevating risk perceptions and potentially strong-arming them into that position, and particularly this being after the breaking of the JCPOA, because I want to press you on potentially, a lot of this framing may seem a bit retroactive in that if America had not broken the JCPOA, potentially it would have been better to pursue a model of constant diplomacy. But having broken away from the JCPOA, having set a precedent potentially of mistrust between the two countries, I want to push you on how that dynamic could still play out, whether this, this is a path that can be pursued now, whether you're cautioning against future action that leads to this not that we're at now, 
or whether this is actually a plausible policy to pursue at this juncture? Well, I think there's an element in your question that I, um, a premise there that I'm not in agreement with, but I think is rather typical, which is that we believe that in order to be able to get a party to engage in, in diplomacy, we have to one way or another force them. That there actually is no genuine desire for them to do so unless we raise the cost. In the case of Iran with the JCPOA, what actually happened was not that the cost became too high, is that the United States under the Obama administration, once Obama realized that the sanctions path that he had chosen was not proceeding as fast as the Iranian counter-pressure strategy, which was to expand the nuclear program. The Iranians were building centrifuges and expanding their program faster than Obama could cripple their economy. And if he just stay, stuck to that uh, line, he would eventually be faced with only two options, either going to war or accepting a nuclear Iran, unless he changed the structure of the situation. And changing the structure of the situation meant going to secret negotiations in Oman, and instead of thinking that he's going to get negotiations by just increasing the pressure and the cost, he actually made an offer. Mm. And what elicited Iranian flexibility was American flexibility. And he gave um, a, a formulation on how and under what circumstances the United States was willing to accept enrichment on Iranian soil, which was the key thing the Iranians were looking for. Once that was given, suddenly the Iranians were much more flexible. Not that it was an easy negotiation, but that's what opened up the negotiations. It wasn't the pressure. It was actually the exhaustion of the pressure campaign that convinced Obama that he had to try something else. If that had been tried 10 years earlier, I think this issue would have been resolved 10 years earlier without the Iranians having advanced their nuclear program as much as they did during the 10 years that the U.S. pursued sanctions. Mm. So now, of course, the U.S. broke the deal. We're out of it. Um, the U.S. has broken several other deals, so there's a massive distrust vis-a-vis -vis the United States, not just from Iran, who has had it for a long time, but now also from European partners and other allies, etc. Uh, and the, to then, under these circumstances, think that the only way we can get back to the negotiation is to once again seek pressure and, and uh, uh, coercion, I think would be a massive mistake. I think uh, if we take a look at, even when it comes to some of the activities in the region, that the U.S. has clear problems with Iran, the only period we can see where there has been a reduction of those is actually when the U.S. and Iran either negotiated or were implementing the nuclear deal. So if our objective truly is to address those issues, to me, I don't see any other path that has been successful with Iran in the last 40 years except genuine negotiations, which means offering something to get something, be willing to compromise, and not think that the only way you can get a deal is to solely focus on what you can coerce the other side to do. If that's, so if we truly want to change uh, some of that conduct, then we have a path that works. The question we have to ask ourselves, why is there such resistance in Washington to pursue a path that has proven successful and so little resistance to pursue a path that for 40 years has been unsuccessful? I mean, I think where, where Trita and I disagree here is that I don't view the JCPOA as having worked. Um, I, I don't, I mean, in, in, a, in a sense, this is sort of true on its face because the JCPOA is no longer being respected by the United States or Iran. I, I think the JCPOA was a flawed agreement, not just in terms of the particulars, but in terms of its conception. Um, because, again, it didn't have that domestic consensus underneath it. And you also had this conundrum of, you know, the, the conceit of the JCPOA was that we could somehow lift, quote-unquote, nuclear-related sanctions while continuing to use sanctions to combat Iran's other activities. But it turns out sanctions aren't quite so easy to entangle, uh, to disentangle, I should say. 
uh, and it's not clear that that model is going to work. Pick one issue um, and purport to lift sanctions just on that one issue. Um, I, I think instead what we need to do is we need to just be a little bit more realistic here. What we've tended to, what we've tended to do with respect to Iran over the past 40 plus years is go back and forth between all or nothing. I, either let's have a comprehensive deal where we solve all of our issues, um, or let's have no contact whatsoever. Uh, I think the reality is that we won't really be free of our disagreements with Iran uh, until you do see a more fundamental shift from Iran. This is a state which is largely isolated in the region and in the world, in part because of the choices that it makes, the strategies it pursues. Mm. Um, and there isn't much I think we can do to change that. And so I think we're going to necessarily have to be in a position of trying to contain and deter Iran um, for the foreseeable future, while looking for opportunities to engage in diplomacy on limited issues. Um, this is, in fact, a pretty conventional strategy, um, one that we pursue with many other states in the world. Uh, and I think that's ultimately where we'll find success against Iran. It's not really, it's not really contradicting what Trita is saying. I, I think the, the difference is um, we probably need to dial back uh, our ambitions for both, both what military uh, intervention could achieve, but also with diplomacy can achieve with Iran, because ultimately what we can't do is we can't transform Iran. We can't transform the regime. That change will have to come from within. Mm. I want to move then to the question of the collateral effects of this war as a last matter in this conversation, because a lot of the criticism that is levied against US war policy is that it is uncontemplative of the desires of people within the region, of other states who are likely to face the backlash from these sorts of decisions. So to quote Muqtada al-Sadr, the skies, land and sovereignty of Iraq are being violated every day by occupying forces, and that was in the wake of a one million man march, proclaimed as a peaceful demonstration to condemn the U American presence and its violations. Equally on January the 5th, the Iraqi parliament passed a resolution to expel US troops, with Abdul Mahdi saying, despite the internal and external difficulties that we might face, it remains best for Iraq on principle and practicality. So to date, America has rejected the resolution on the grounds of, one, emboldening the resurgence of ISIS and extremists, and two, intensifying interstate security concerns. So to both of you, to what extent should the sovereignty of Iraq's democratically elected parliament, indeed of Lebanon's parliament at the moment, as it is just appointed under Hassan Diab, factor into US military strategy and what is the legitimacy of the current strategy of the rejecting these sorts of resolutions and the American obligations to observe statehood as a governing norm of international engagement? Where is that line? Look, I, th I think we need to start by acknowledging that the regime change wars we've engaged in over the past 20 years have largely not been successful. That, in fact, our efforts to use uh, not just the military but then other tools uh, to really radically transform states like Iraq, Afghanistan, and so forth, uh, have met with um, lots of problems. And I think that's now consensus in the United States. Um, so the question is, what do we do instead? Um, and I do think that what we need to do in, in this region, but also, you know, you could argue more broadly, is, first of all, focus on our willing partners, um, states in the region which are looking for international assistance, are looking for international partnership, um, where we can sort of prevent new problems from springing up. And oftentimes that's what, get, that's what gets neglected in the region. Um, we focus only on the hardest problems, which frankly are the hardest to, to really make a difference to, to resolve, and we maybe neglect 
those areas that aren't problems where we have partners looking for help. Um, and then focus more on diplomacy, on development, on deterrence, um, and, and less on sort of radical transformation. Um, I, I think that will lead us down a better path. Look, in all these places, uh, yes, I mean, our, our strategy has to be respectful of the sovereignty of these states. Um, but at the same time, I think our help should be conditional. Our help should be conditional on um, our, the states that we're trying to help um, being willing to accept help, being willing to sort of make the right choices for themselves. And if they're not willing to do that, I think that there is a case to be made that the U.S. should, um, should basically step back um, and wait until conditions improve uh, to, to re-engage on, on some of those issues. Um, again, you know, it's, uh, we have to recognize the limitations uh, of, and the constraints of our own tools. They're not omnipotent. We're not omnipotent. Um, but there is plenty we can do in the region if we have realistic ambitions. The first condition of our assistance should be that the party that is getting help wants to help. And in the case of Iraq, they've made it clear that that is not the case right now. So the, the mere fact that Trump first says that he wants to get out of the Middle East and then when he gets this golden opportunity to do so, instead he turns around and he says that he's going to sanction Iraq, and sanction them really hard, talking about maximum pressure, I, I, I think it reveals that this is not a policy about stabilizing Iraq. It's not a policy about doing anything of this. This is about control, control of the region. And I think instead of, if Michael wanted to start off by, you know, saying, okay, who are our willing partners? I would want to start off by first asking the question, what is our interest in this region? How has that interest shifted, if at all, over the course of the last couple of decades? Is this a region that is so strategically important that it does warrant that degree of American involvement, particularly American military footprint? If not, how do we begin a transition towards something that is not relying so much on such an American posture, but at the same time does not leave any uh, problems behind as a result of an American withdrawal? I think that should be the absolute first question. It should not just be in the Middle East, but in general. We are faced with a conceptual deficit in our foreign policy. We're still acting as if the Cold War really didn't quite end. We are, I think, intertwining the idea of American leadership with American military hegemony. We have difficulty in Washington imagining what American leadership would look like without American military hegemony. And we're coming to a point in which it's going to be increasingly difficult for the United States to be able to sustain the cost of such a broad hegemony, particularly in regions that are not that important any longer. And we will either proactively shift this policy or we will be forced to do so because we cannot bear the cost any longer. And I think that requires deep uh, reflection in Washington uh, that we're not quite yet seeing, but I suspect we will be seeing soon. I mean, I think that uh, the caveat to that, though, is we, we have to be careful not to think that we don't have interest in this region or that there isn't a desire for American leadership, because I think there is actually a thirst for American leadership. Uh, in this region and, frankly, elsewhere. Um, but that leadership needs to be uh, smart, it needs to be consistent, um, and uh, it, it needs to be, for sure, interests-focused, where we have mutual interests uh, with our partners, because I think that's necessary to sustain a domestic basis uh, for what we're doing. Um, but stepping back, disengaging, throwing up our hands, um, even in a region as complicated and difficult as the Middle East, uh, I think will take us in absolutely the wrong direction. I would push back against the idea that this is throwing up our hands. As Michael himself said earlier on, we need to have realistic objectives. The objectives of the United States 
going into the region in the manner that it did around the Iraq war was clearly unrealistic. Adjusting away from that is not to give up, it's to recognize that we were setting ourselves up for failure. We have now a scenario in which uh, the youngest soldiers fighting in Afghanistan were not born when 9-11 took place. I have a gentleman working in my office at the Quincy Institute who um, finished high school six months early because he was terrified that he would not be able to, he was enlisting in the military, he was terrified that he would miss the war if he didn't finish high school early. Now he's at Quincy trying to do some good work in uh, ending that endless war. So I, I think um, framing uh, a different posture in the Middle East as giving up rather than a proper recalibration away from excessive militarism, away from essentially seeking domination at any cost rather than really taking into account what the region needs, what the interests are, and how we actually can make sure that stability in the region and, and uh, the internal geopolitical constellation is such that it's not going to be a threat to the U.S. That, I think, is very much needed, and I, I would not see that as uh, giving up, but rather uh, giving the United States a better chance at succeeding. Hmm. Trudor, Michael, obviously this is a very complicated dialectic. There's so much more I wish we could have unpacked, but thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It was wonderful to hear both perspectives, and we'll see how it unfurls. We'll see how both interact with your views, but we really appreciate your time in coming and joining us, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.